Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 8, Introducing the Lord. And on this podcast, we're really going to focus in just on verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2. And I know that's not a lot, but there's a lot that I want to point out from it based upon how it is inserted into the passage almost unrecognizably. And then I'd like to jump ahead to Exodus to sort of explain some things that I think will help us make the most sense of how Genesis 2 fits with Genesis 1. So here we go. To begin, allow me just to read Genesis 2 for, um, for you and then to simply make a few observations about it. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, if you happen to have a Bible in front of you, or even if you don't, you can look at this later, but you'll notice that verse 4 is set apart from the rest of the chapter. It sort of stands alone. And it does this for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, it, it's, it forms sort of a heading over what is about to follow, being the first time in Genesis that we've read the words, these are the generations of something. And what this actually is saying is these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. But if you read through Genesis and you come to chapter 5, you'll read these are the generations of Adam, the first man. Um, And chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah, uh, a man who was blameless in God's sight and who God preserved his life and his family's life um, through an ark. And then after the flood in chapter 10, We read these are the generations of the sons of Noah, and then these are the generations of Abraham, and these are the generations of Isaac, and these are the generations of Ishmael, and then these are the generations of Jacob, and these are the generations of Esau. And the book of Genesis ultimately is beginning us with the biggest, broadest scope of the creation of all things, and it is funneling us as its readers to more and more and more specific purposes that God has for the world. And this is done intentionally. And the book of Genesis actually could be broken down into a book of the generations of here, starting with the heavens and the earth, but ultimately ending with very, very specific focus on a very particular people, and then ultimately to a very particular person. And so this, again, is is just an observation. It's helpful for you because otherwise you think, what's the purpose of here? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I probably gave some things away in the title of this podcast, Introducing the Lord. And if you've read the podcast and not just listened to it or at least read the title, you saw that I put the Lord in all capital letters. And that's precisely because in the translation we have in our English Bibles, the authors also put this word in all capital letters. And it's interesting when you read the first half of the verse, it says that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Genesis 2, if you've ever noticed this, but do you notice that in the first half of the verse, it references the heavens and the earth, but in the second half of the verse, it references the earth 
and the heavens. And I think this is intentional. And I think it's intentional because plopped down right in the middle of the two, excuse me, is this phrase, the Lord God. And in Genesis 1, we have an explanation of the creation of all things on a cosmic and on a quite global, universal scale. We have darkness in the whole universe and then God creating light. And then we have seas and waters and things that are much, much, much larger than life, if you will. They're, they're very, very big. Genesis 1 is giving us the full picture of creation from 30,000 feet. This is the big thing. This is the whole view. But if you know anything about Genesis chapter 2, you notice that in Genesis 2, there are a lot of elements of creation that I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, look as if they're simply repeating some of the same thing that happened in Genesis 1, and yet they're doing it very differently. Instead of God simply saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so God created man, Genesis 2 zooms in much closer than a 30,000 foot view and actually shows us God himself, the Lord God, getting his hands dirty and creating man. He actually is looking at the same creation narrative that we read about in Genesis 1, but instead of viewing it like it's from heaven to earth, we flip it, and now we're looking at it from the earth outward. And again, I think this is intentional. We have both a view of the 30,000 foot view. God is other than us. He is outside of us. He is above us in so many ways. But we also have God who's very close and who's very intimate and who's very personal and who's very knowable. And Genesis 2, 4 provides the hinge that you and I need to understand how it is that a God who is other and bigger and holy and separate and special and the creator can at the same time be personal, intimate, compassionate, gracious, kind, loving, and knowable. And the way that we understand how that's possible is with this, as I said, very subtle introduction of the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, it's possible that you have read Genesis 1 and 2 before, and it's possible that you've read them numerous times, and it's also possible that you have seen exactly what I'm about to say, and so this is not a surprise to you, and I'm glad because th- this way you're, you're going to track m- much better um, if you've already seen this. But it is very possible to read Genesis 1 and then to read Genesis 2 and never notice a major shift that takes place in the language used to describe the creation. If you read Genesis 1 over and over and over, It simply says, and God said, and God saw that it was good, and God said, and God said, so God created man, and God blessed them, and God said to them, and God said, and God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Over and over and over and over, you get, and God, and God, and God. But seemingly out of nowhere, the end of verse 4 says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
And if you're not reading super closely, you don't recognize that every other verse throughout the rest of chapter 2 has Lord God, Lord God. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And in a really, really subtle way, we're not told anything about the Lord. We're not told what that word means. We're not told why that word decides to show up right here in verse 4. But as I was pointing out a minute ago, when you get into the discussion of the generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Noah's sons, the generations of Abraham, the generations of Isaac, the generations of Jacob, this is actually taking the reader somewhere. It is taking the reader from the creation of all things toward a particular people. And many of those of you who know the Old Testament at, at all would know that he's taking us toward the people of Israel. And it's important for us to understand how Israel understands the relationship of their God as the one who created all things with the God who also set them free from the land of Egypt. Now, the best way I know how to show you what I'm talking about is just going to be to read this for you um, from the book of Exodus. So, for the time being, uh, we're going to step out of Genesis entirely, and we're going to go to two passages in the book of Exodus, one in Exodus 3 and the second in Exodus 6. And just to give you a brief overview of how we end up in this section and what's come before is that God has, in fact, made his promises to Abraham that he's going to reverse the effects of the fall, which we haven't even gotten to in our podcast, but many of you probably know this story, and he eventually creates a great nation out of his people from Abraham, and they end up being saved from certain death and starvation in a famine by Joseph, who is one of Jacob's sons, who goes to Egypt unfairly treated by his brothers, but ends up in a position of great honor and power, and he saves the entire nation, and they all live in Egypt until a pharaoh rises up who forgot about Joseph, sees the people of Israel as a threat to the Egyptian empire, and puts them all into slavery, which quite certainly is not being a blessing to the world. Um, Israel itself isn't even being, being blessed, much less blessing anyone else. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, the people cry out for deliverance, and God meets with Moses in a burning bush in the wilderness while Moses has fled for his own life from Egypt. And in verse 7 of, of Exodus 3, this is what it says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, 
I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, just as you're listening in to this, as, as for me to read this, this is God now declaring to Moses, this is my name, the Lord. I am who I am. In Hebrew, <clears throat> it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, and it simply means I am who I am. But God is... God is connecting it. The Lord is connecting this name to his promises to be a covenant-keeping God for his people. He made a promise to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob that he would make his people into a great nation and that he would bless them and that they would be a blessing. Well, at this exact point in the narrative, they're not being blessed and they're not being a blessing. And so because they cry out to God from a position of oppression— And particularly, as we looked at in a previous podcast, particularly being oppressed under a pharaoh in Egypt who thinks that ruling over mankind in the way he's choosing to do it is a good way to rule. And we couldn't think anything further from the truth. This is an incredibly wrong-headed way of ruling the world, oppressing people. This is the opposite of what God desires for his own creation. And so the people cry out for help, and the Lord is the one who hears them. And so if we flip ahead a few chapters, for just a moment, we're going to let this make our conversation a little sticky for just a second, but then I think we can clarify it and bring it all back to helping us make sense of this whole thing. So God is promising deliverance for his people to Moses. He eventually convinces Moses that this is the right thing to do. God's going to be with him. He'll be his spokesman. And in verse 2 of Exodus 6, we read this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Wow, I just love that passage. You will know that I am the Lord your God. And I think what's amazing about this passage amongst a million things, and I, I am I'm committed to keeping these episodes relatively short. I know a few have gotten a, um, a little longer than I had intended, but what I want to point out here is that this verse in verse 3 he says something very strange, particularly as it relates to our passage in Genesis 2. But God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, if you read the book of Genesis all the way through, particularly in the places where the Lord God is dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way the passage is read in our Bibles, it most specifically says, and the Lord God said to Abraham, or the Lord God said to Jacob, or the Lord God said to Isaac. And yet in Exodus 6, 3, God tells Moses, I have not made my name, the Lord, known to any of them. They only knew me as God Almighty. And you might be tempted to say, what on earth is happening? And I hope you do, because we need to be honest with those kinds of questions surface. There are some who conclude that the Bible doesn't know what it's doing and that there are extra accounts of the creation that don't fit, that don't mesh. And, and, and some of those things histor historically might be a worthwhile discussion. But, but I'm not sure that any of that is, is overtly necessary. And here's why. The book of Genesis was written down long after the events recorded in the book of Genesis took place. And so the book of Genesis is actually being written for the people of Israel to, again, as I pointed out earlier, to help them recognize the, the generations of the heaven and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, pointing all the way down to where this affects them personally. And so when the story is told to them, they need to be aware that the God who was taking such good care of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, making promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now coming through on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by setting free their oppressed descendants from Egypt, they need to know that all along the way, the God caring for them isn't just the God who created He's also the personal God who redeems. And the reason why this discussion is so important, and I think I pointed this out in the podcast about the Sabbath, is that the Sabbath is rooted in both God as creator as well as God as redeemer. And wouldn't you know it, before you and I even come to the place in the Bible, which is Genesis 3, where redemption even becomes necessary, 
we've already inserted the Lord into the narrative, which is crucial for us to understand that all along the way, the God who creates, the God who is big, the God who is transcendent, the God who reigns over all is also personal, intimate, compassionate, and concerned for the cries of the oppressed. And wouldn't you know it, that the very first time in the Bible we're given the name of God, along with its explanation as to what that name means, it is in the context of a response to the cries of an oppressed people. Which is why all through the prophets, when God is rebuking his people, he will say to them, is this not what it means to know me, the Lord, the one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness? If you do not serve me or you do not know me as the God who rescued you from oppression or as the God whose heart breaks for those under oppression, then you will not know what it means to know me. But this name, the Lord, Yahweh, or Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is fundamentally at root who God is. It's, this is his name. And this, this could get confusing. I hope it isn't. But, but I, I want you to realize that, that the word God is not a name. It's a title. He is God. This, this divine being of strength and power and, and creation capabilities. But there were other gods believed to be active in the world, particularly in the nations that surrounded Israel. And Israel, as you might very well know, was tempted to worship those gods and did worship those gods. So, but those gods were named Baal. Those gods were named Molech, and each one of them, by their very name, embodied a certain characteristic about them that when their people worshipped them by those names and by those characteristics, those people who worshipped them started to become like them. We've also looked at this in previous podcast episodes. And so for the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to be inserted here in the narrative is done so in order for you and I to recognize that the God who created all things, the heavens to the earth, now shifts in Genesis 2 and is very, very eager to show how the creation of the earth to the heavens is done by the Lord himself. So as you begin to read the Bible with this idea of the Lord in mind, it will help you make a whole lot more sense of how it is that we read, and this is what the Lord your God says. It's, it's not a redundancy. It's the fact that the word God is a title and the word Lord is a name. So it's almost like saying, of all the different gods that one might choose to follow, the Lord is your God. The Lord 
the one who rescued you from oppression, the one who saved you from slavery in Egypt, the one who first revealed himself to mankind by this name, did so in response to an, the cries of an oppressed people. And you will hear me continually reference the Lord in that way, the, the God who responds to the cries of an oppressed people to set them free. Because this fundamentally at its root is what he will expect of his followers and of his worshipers in the way they respond toward the cries of others who are oppressed. This will be a repeated theme throughout the Bible. In fact, when you come to the Psalms, again, if this is a new concept for you, I'm excited for you. Because when you read the Psalms, what you will see is the Lord all over the place. Who these people are praying to is not just God. They're praying to the Lord because he's the one who is faithful to keep his covenant promises through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one who gets down in messy with the creation on the ground in real situations with real oppressed people, with real poverty, with real brokenness, with real ugliness. He's not a God who remains aloof and only comes close enough to us by giving us certain commands. We're going to see him embody the very commands he gives to the world, and we're going to see him throughout the remainder of the biblical story promise to place his name in places like the temple, which is why when Solomon dedicates it in 1 Kings 8, he tells God, this is the place that you've promised to place your name so that when people come to you and they confess their need for you, you need to hear them, you need to forgive them, and you need to reach out and help them. This is who our God wants to be known as. He wants to be known as the Lord. And I would be totally off base if I didn't at least conclude this podcast with reminding you of precisely what it is that is actually happening in the New Testament when Jesus comes onto the scene. Because for years, this name of God, the Lord, had been spoken about, but only when Jesus comes is it actually fully realized. And guess what? Jesus spent exorbitant amounts of his time in this earthiness of creation following the generations of the earth and the heavens when the Lord God's name is first inserted into the biblical narrative because Jesus is touching lepers. He's sleeping with no place or he has no place to lay his head. He doesn't have a home. He's dealing with the sick. He's dealing with the dying. He's dealing with the demon oppressed and he is despised by the religious group who like to keep their view of God in the heavens they like God in the heavens, not on the earth. And Genesis 2-4 provides a perfect hinge for us to see in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, there's our Genesis 1, there's our big picture, and we walked through that in week 3 of the podcast. But now in this section, we are about ready to go through the remainder of chapter 2 in Genesis, and God is going to get very personal. He's going to speak 
to the first humans. He's going to create them out of the dust of the earth and breathe into their nostrils the breath of life. This is a very personal, very intimate, very caring God known as the Lord who will be redeeming his people as well as creating them. And you'll see interchangeably once again in the biblical story, the idea of creation and the idea of redemption are not only intricately connected, but they're often spoken about in the same language. For instance, redemption is often spoken about in the Bible quite literally as new creation. It's creation all over again, but it's done so in this intimate, personal kind of a way. And even the way that Genesis 1 and 2 are written and the topics they choose to address communicate that to us from the very beginning. And so that's actually all I have for this week. I am so thankful that you've still, you've chosen to hang in here now for a full eight episodes. And again, I would always love to hear comments or questions. If you would like to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Many of you know me personally and you have conversations with me on a regular basis anyways, but I'm so thankful you're along for the ride and I'll talk with you next week.